from the Film Society of Lincoln Center, you're listening to The Close-Up. Each week, we bring you in-depth conversations with some of the biggest names in filmmaking. It's October 21st, 2015. I'm Michael Odemark, one of the show's producers. Today, we're sharing two highlights from this year's New York Film Festival, which concluded on October 11th. First, you'll hear an intimate conversation with Kate Winslet. And after that, you'll hear a live discussion with documentary filmmaker Laura Poitras, who joined collaborators Charlotte Cook and A.J. Schnack to talk about Field of Vision, a series of short-form documentaries being commissioned for online publication on The Intercept. The event was part of our NYFF Live series of free talks, sponsored by HBO. Before that, we wanted to share a brief excerpt from a Q&A with Paul Thomas Anderson, which took place after the world premiere of his new documentary, Janun. The film chronicles Johnny Greenwood's quest to northwest India, where he was recording an album with Israeli composer Shai Ben Sur. The film, at just under an hour, is pure magic, and it's now available exclusively on Mubi.com. Let's go now to that Q&A. See, I told you they'd like it. <laughs> to be clear about the album that was being recorded, it's a Shai Bensor album in collaboration with Johnny Greenwood, and the musicians are the, They gave local. them the name. They came up with a name. They called them the Rajasthan Express, but that was new to me. <laughs> we, we, we think that they just came up with something like that. But, um, yeah, Shai's played with a lot of these guys mm-hmm. for a while, um, and Johnny discovered Shai's music um, Johnny's wife is Israeli, and he was interested in this, this instrument that he kept hearing. And he kept hearing these songs that he loved, and that had this common theme that they were mm-hmm. his music. So they found each other somehow yep. and came together mm-hmm. to, to do this. Yeah, and, but why did they decide to record in the fort? That's an amazing... Yeah, well, why not? I yeah, guess. right, um, I guess. Yeah. It was trying to... F- I, you know, that was Shai's doing. It was try- you know, he, Shai is a good Israeli boy who picked up and left Israel to move to India... Um, when he was like 18 years old. So he's lived there many, many, many years. So he knows the area, he knows Rajasthan. And I believe it was his idea to go to this fort and with the blessing of the Maharaja, they kind of let us uh, record in that room that you saw, which, you know, when we first got there, they were saying, oh, this is the garden room. But that by the end of our stay there, it was kind of clear that this is where the uh, the concubines would stay and hang out. You know, so it was like I mean, the mysteries kept unraveling themselves as we were there. All right. <laughs> um, but yeah, and that's the fort, and there are scenes from The Dark Knight Rises. Yeah, I, I don't remember that shot. But I guess it is in that. I mean, I know that from Wikipedia. <laughs> I've seen the film, but I you, you looked that up today. <laughs> No. <laughs> no, no. On my way down there, when I right. got into this mess, they said, "Well, where are we going?" You know. Well, what did you get? What do you mean you got into this mess? Johnny said, "I'm going to go." Well, Maybe Johnny maybe. said um, he was going to go to India. Johnny and Johnny's wife, Sharona. Um, well, Sharona actually said, "We're going to go to India to make this record. Do you want to go?" Mm-hmm. Yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> was that that easy, really? Yeah, and you shot most of it yourself with your own black magic. Yeah. Um, um, well, there was th- three or four of us. Um, a couple of Johnny's friends from Oxford came down. They had cameras. I had a camera. I had a bunch of really kind of new, fangled, sexy camera gear that got stuck in customs and, and never made it out. So basically, I just had what was in my carry-on luggage and we went down with and a couple different cameras. And that's what we did it with. And, um, and everybody kind of usually had a camera in their hand that wasn't playing music. Mm-hmm. And then you and then you got a, a drone. 
Well, Nigel got a drone. Oh, okay. Nigel got a drone as a gift right. from his pal Marcus, and um, he started flying the drone around. Right. Um, and it looked great, you know? It was like a dream come true. Like when you were a kid, you're like, I wish I could get a camera and attach it to something and fly yeah. it around, you know? Yeah. Um, and our, you know, your dreams come true. And then, you know, sooner or later, you're bored with the drone after a while, so you fly it into a wall and break. <laughs> <laughs> like any tool. And you don't tell your parents. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, right, you try to right. put it back together again. And Nigel, Nigel, we should specify, is Nigel Goodrich, who's Radiohead's usual... He's, he's their a, uh, producer, producer and, 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 and everything. They've been together as a, a unit. For and he's also the pigeon wrangler. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. What did it take for him to make an actual studio out of this setting? I mean, you know... Ooh, um, Lots of foam, honestly. That was the right. kind of, you know, that was a, that, there was a thing that we probably could have put in there. Just the journey to go into downtown Jodhpur and buy massive amounts of foam to put everywhere so that it sounded right for him. But he imported uh, the mixing board that you, you saw, that them, them putting together, uh, a bunch of microphones, yeah. and all that, I, that gear that did make it through customs. Um, and, you know, um, it, then it became... Um, you know, renting gear in India is is is, is complicated. <laughs> it's yeah. tricky. You know, you you have to request something about three or four days in advance and expect that when it does get there, it's probably going to be <laughs> wrong <laughs> or broken. Um, and that they really dealt with that kind of stuff. So everything was always just we're just making things up as we went along. You know, these microphone stands won't stand up. Let's make some sandbags. Let's get some sand. And let's. There were some women down below that were stitching these blankets. So we asked them to stitch us up some. Sandbags, so yeah. the microphones wouldn't. So there was a lot of jerry rigging and, and improvising, say, and yes. yeah, yeah. yeah, tons of that. Did the power go out a lot? At, oh no, that's absolutely all the time. Power yeah. go out all the time, yeah. and there was a battery that would run for about ten minutes. Yeah. So you know you had you know like you had Johnny in there saying you know I think Johnny was happy to scream at these guys like you've got ten minutes because if it was up to them they would endlessly noodle and tune and not do anything you know just play like improvised music I mean you had to kind of say you've got ten minutes go hurry yeah. we were yesterday who was it somebody suggested that Johnny looks like Schroeder yeah at the piano <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty accurate it, yeah seems like it. Um, when there was a there was a point at which you were talking about other films that you know you love that are musical films like Trances, which is a movie that's very yeah. dear to, to uh, Marty, a movie about Nassau Gawan, but very dear to Martin Scorsese, yeah. and um, some other films. I was wondering if you had stuff like that in mind, you know, in the back of your mind when you were. Well, you know, um, the 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 gold standard for me of people filming music is Jazz on a Summer's Day. Yeah. You know that one, yeah. and um, that I just remember looking through the you know the little camera at um, at me, the trumpet player, and feeling like, oh, that kind of looks like Jazz on a Summer's yeah. Day. So that that's that was good with me, you know, um, just being simple and being out of the way and, and letting them play. So that, I kept thinking about jazz on a summer's day, how elegant it was. Yeah. And then um, <clears throat> um, I, 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 I didn't know how much explaining to do about the project, you know, in terms of a, mm -hmm. a, the story. 
and I kept thinking, jazz on a summer's day, they don't explain anything, you know? Yeah. Look, and then I, I watched it again, and the very first thing that comes up is this detailed explanation of what <laughs> is going on, where it takes place, when it was shot, what yeah. day it is, what year right. it is. So I was like, my memory had none of that. Of the yeah. Well, but yeah, so what you did is based on, is a kind of based on your faulty memory of that because it's a, it's a movie that just is carried by the music. Right, right. right. Yeah. 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 And then what's the future of the movie and the music? The, the album is coming out on Nonsuch, right? The album is going to come out in a month. Right. Um, and, and hopefully at some point in the new year, uh, you know, they, the, all of the musicians and Johnny and Shy will, will hopefully come to America and play some shows. But that would be ideal. Yeah. You know, um, f figuring that out is sort of a logistical, uh, comp very complicated. So many musicians and so much stuff. Yeah. But they did a concert in Jerusalem yeah. about a month ago, and they're going to do another one in London. So it's not impossible that they won't come to America. You should put one of those, this film should be played loud cards. I know, front of the, I was very tempted. Right. Um, like, what was it? That was in front of the last waltz. Last waltz, yeah. Yeah, yeah I know. Right. I, well, every concert film should have that heading. In. But, um, but yeah. yeah. And it's going to be on Mubi, you know, right. starting mm -hmm. tonight or tomorrow, something like that. And so people Any minute now? Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it's, uh, you know, we played it loud here. Hope it sounded, sounded good. Uh, it sounded amazing in here. All right. Amazing. All right. Yeah. Thanks, man. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> Thanks. Do you wish the New York Film Festival wasn't over? Or are you wondering what you missed? Listen to Film Comments podcast for a lively discussion between critics, programmers, and editors about Todd Haynes' Carol, Yorgos Lanthimos' The Lobster, Zhajanka's Mountains Made Apart, and many more highlights of the season and beyond. Visit filmcomment.com for more information about subscribing. During NYFF, we celebrated the career of Kate Winslet with our annual An Evening With fundraising event. It featured dinner and an intimate conversation with NYFF director Kent Jones. In the discussion, they traced the entirety of Winslet's illustrious career, starting with her breakthrough performance in Peter Jackson's Heavenly Creatures, all the way up to her latest critically lauded role in Danny Boyle's Steve Jobs, which was the festival's centerpiece selection. So let's go now to their conversation. Um, I have to start with the story that I was telling you before about uh, when the selection committee for the New York Film Festival went to see Steve Jobs, uh, we were all floored by it, and then on the way out we were talking and um, some people, I won't say which ones, um, said, uh, boy, um, that was great, and um, you know, that actress who played uh, Joanna Hoffman was fantastic. I, 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 I can't think of her name, but I've seen her in, in other films, and I know... <laughs> She's, she's just really, uh, she's always good. <laughs> um, and uh, so you were saying that, you know, that's understandably a great compliment, right? Well, it was um, the character that I play in the film. Uh, I, I, I really don't look anything like her at all. And, uh, and I knew that I was going to have a job getting the filmmakers to even consider me because I just, I, I'm, I'm blonde and I've got boobs and, 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 and the real Joanna Hoffman is five foot two and maybe doesn't have quite as big a boobs as I do. And, uh, um, 
And I, I you know, I, I, I just, I just knew that I had to somehow ignite their creative imagination and, um, <laughs> and hope to God they'd send me a, send me a script. Um, and, and yes, I said to Danny Boyle when I, I had a, my first meeting with him, I said, you know, we just, no, no fuss here. We just have to, I have to disappear into this part. I just mustn't look anything like myself at all. It would be very, very cool if we could have people wondering who that is. Um, and it's, 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 a, it's a great, it's a trick. It's a, it's a great trick. I mean, that's what, that's what, you know, acting is supposed to be like and feel like. And um, if you can pull it off and you can actually convince an audience that you really are somebody else, then, then that's, that's, you know, it's a great, great feeling. Mission accomplished. But, I mean, what does it feel like for you personally to do the disappearing, in other words? What, is um, the, what does that entail? Well, you say abracadabra. Right. And then <laughs> say a little prayer. Um, um, it feels, you know, it's quite honestly, it is such great fun. I mean, it's dressing up, you know, I mean, it really truly is. And, um, you know, amazing wigs. The film spans three different periods in time 84, 88, and 98. And luckily, hair changed a lot in those 14 years. I was helped hugely by some very bad hairstyles. Um, and clothes as well, you know, the sort of asymmetrical lines. And glasses. And the glasses, mm -hmm. yes. Um, so it was fun. And, and, you know, there's nothing prosthetic about any of it at all. It really was just wigs and glasses and some funky costumes. And, uh, and also this, the, the, the dialect that I had to do, because the, the real Joanna Hoffman... Which is extremely unusual. It's a, the faint trace of a Polish accent. Right? Yes. Yeah. She, the real Joanna Hoffman um, was born in Poland and moved to Armenia when she was two and then went back to Poland for a while, but a lot of her family were actually speaking Russian. So she, it's neither one thing or the other. I mean, it is quite mixed up. And then she came to America um, as a teenager. And so she has such strong Eastern European sounds um, with this swingy American rhythm as well, um, which she doesn't realize she's got at all. It's very funny. Um, so yeah, I had to, you know, I, I, I wanted to, be as accurate with that as as I could be, because it's 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 so much who she is. You know, it is the color of of Joanna Hoffman, and I think that's probably why Erin Sorkin chose to use her as this character alongside Steve, because in reality there were several very strong women in Steve's working life. You um, mean a composite. Yeah, and so we kind of he, he he did yeah exactly. She's a composite character, and um and and I was I was just so delighted that he chose her because I had such a good time with her, you know, spending time with her and, um, and talking with her and sharing her stories. But at a certain point, I would imagine that you have to, as well as you can get to know a person that you're playing, then you have to kind of cut the cord and take it in your own direction. Yeah, we, we, we were always very careful, actually, Joanna and I, when we spoke, to talk about the character very much in the third person, which was partly because... You know, in, in reality, she was head of marketing for the Macintosh and, um, um, and then moved with Steve to Next. And, and she was absolutely one of his key people. Um, but she said, she said there's no way that she, in reality, could have been his work wife because there's no one more absent-minded and disorganized than, than, than she is. Um, in actual fact, she tells this very sweet story. She said, she, said, she said there was this one night when she and Steve were supposed to be doing some work together and it was very late. They would keep really funky hours, especially right before a launch. They actually barely ever slept. 
and uh, and he showed up at our apartment and it was one o'clock in the morning and um, and he, he he said Joanna I can't be this is just, this is a pigsty I can't be in this apartment this is just so, how can you live like this and she's like well I'm not bothered and um, and he said well I'm gonna, I have to clean and he cleaned her apartment he really did at 1 a.m. and then left they didn't even do any work he just left and she tells this funny story she said her shares <laughs> her her apple shares she says and then some somehow they got lost i don't know what happened to those shares i think steve like and we were like <gasps> joanna and she went i know that was so funny i just don't, i just don't know where they are and we're kind of going oh my god <laughs> <laughs> we were like, you really don't know where they are? No, no, I have no clue what happened to them. I mean, she's properly absent-minded. Um, but yeah, she was, um, she was very generous with, with her stories. And, uh, and, and at the same time, she did, you know, she did keep... She always, always would say to me, you know, but it, it's, it's your character and, you know, Joanna the character. And I think also for her, there was something quite emotional about it too because... She, you know, she had such affection for Steve and, and such huge amounts of respect for him and admired him so greatly and, 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 and misses him. I mean, absolutely misses him. There was a moment in rehearsal where she'd come in one day actually to talk to all of us and I was holding her hand and I said, God, it's so wonderful to have you and to be able to listen to you and copy you, you know. And then, and then she, she grabbed Michael's wrist and she went, oh, and you don't have somebody. And she got all teary because, and she actually then recounted a story a couple of days previously. She said she was walking to get coffee and she said she almost thought she'd seen Steve, just the back of him. She, she thought that she'd seen him and, and, and it, she said it really took her a day or two to kind of get over this feeling that it wasn't him and he isn't here. And um, so for her, I think it's been quite an extraordinary experience, really, um, just going through the motions of just literally talking about him again. This movie is, people don't make movies this way. The way that this film is shot with these long, unbroken takes. And, uh, and also, in three different formats, right? 16 millimeter for the first section, 35 for the second section, HD for the third. But filming in those unbroken takes is challenging. Huh? And uh, we were talking about this before. Uh, yeah, it's, you know. um, so, so the film, because, this, because it's written by <laughs> Sorkin and... Um, he is a bugger, I tell you. So these, these extraordinary dialogue scenes that have sometimes multiple people in them and sometimes just two people, they really do go on for 13 or 14 pages, which, you know, as some of the filmmakers in this room, John, will know that that's long. That's a long old take. And, 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 and we really would shoot them all in one with no cuts, no trickery, no note cards, nothing. And... Um, that's a huge amount of pressure, not just because you have to really remember every beat, every moment, what you were saying when you walked through the door frame, what was the word that you closed the dressing room door on, what was the word that you opened the door on, again, you know, which hand you had the clipboard in, et cetera. I mean, you know, these are things that actors retain in their minds all of the time, but when you have to do that for such a prolonged number of pages, it really is very, very difficult. And not only that, but we shot most of the film in Steadicam, so, you had to remember which side of the Steadicam operator you were physically standing on when you walked through the doorway, and then when Michael was saying that piece of dialogue, were you in the corner here, or were you... I mean, there was a lot of stuff, and Michael and I would find ourselves recounting during a take that there was something Danny had said five takes previously that he'd really, really liked and definitely wanted to use, and we'd suddenly realise, oh, shit, we're, we're, we're in the wrong part of the room. You know, we were sort of three feet off where we had been five takes ago, 
and Michael would be on the wrong side of the Steadicam operator, I could tell. So I'd know that he had crossed the line and that I'd, then I'd quickly go, oh shit, so I'd fake an eye line. <laughs> and I, and, I, and I, would be, I would be saying, I would be saying a big fast paced piece of dialogue to absolutely nothing at all. And Michael would be over there somewhere. Um, and Michael and I did find ourselves saying out loud how grateful we were for the amount of film experience we had and actually struck by the amount of not real knowledge you know that, that we had acquired over time um it was so so helpful to have all of that uh when making this in your case you made your first film at what age when you made heavenly creatures um, i was 17 yeah okay so you made your first film for peter jackson so you dove right into it right um <laughs> <laughs> You see, this is where I think I was really lucky, you know, because I think when any actor is called back again and, you, you know, you keep being invited along for the ride, you know, you do consider yourself to be so fortunate. But that was the biggest stroke of luck of all, uh, of all for me because not only was I asked to play an extraordinary part in a true story, in a film script written by Peter Jackson and Fran Walsh, and then Peter directed it, and people actually liked the film, and it became this, mm -hmm. it became that movie um, that people still talk about. You know, that was a stroke of luck. You know, lots of actors will tootle around making small films and maybe get, you know, a bit of a punchy role in something and then a lead role in something else, but movies that amount to not very much at all, and they still right. soldier on. Um, and then 10 years into their career, they might get that great lucky break. Mm -hmm. But I had those lucky breaks straight away. I mean, it was, you know, just very fortuitous circumstances. Mm -hmm. And I learned so much. You know, that's the other thing too, is that, you know, I did, I did leave school when I was 16. And, and, and the funny thing about us English actors is that over here in America, <laughs> you guys all think that we've been classically trained and that we speak perfectly because we've been taught for three years to you know, do that with marbles in our mouths or something. Um, and, and honestly, I, I, I can't tell you, I grew up in a tiny, tiny terraced house in a family of impoverished actors <laughs> and uh, real sort of you know, wandering players you know, who would job, run from job to job and they would work in a post office and then my father worked for a tarmac firm and would go for auditions in the afternoon. And you know, it was really very much you know, a fun, lovely, childhood on a shoestring um, and so I, I you know I'd only ever seen hard graft and lots of joy mm -hmm. and I just thought well that seems like a hell of a great gig to me I, I, I'm up for the impoverished actor life you know mm -hmm. let's go um, and so when I did have an audition for a film which happened to be Heavenly Creatures was the first ever film audition I'd had I really just couldn't believe it I mean I just you know we didn't get a VCR until I was 15 so I, I couldn't I couldn't believe it um, yeah, just um, been very lucky. I have the impression that right off the bat you had a real sense of the camera. Um, what I mean by that is your own relationship with the camera, how you translate visually on the screen, because um, right away in that film and Holy Smoke and Hideous Kinky, all these early films, it was, it, it was like seeing someone who had already had a career, actually, who really knew their way you know, uh, around. Well, that is acting then, because I didn't have a clue okay. <laughs> I was doing any of that. <laughs> um, well, you know, I think, you know, I, I, I really try and honestly ignore the camera. I mean, I really do try very hard to be as unaware of where the hell that fucking thing is as I possibly can, because sometimes you just don't, you really don't want it to be. And I hate close-ups, because you just, you can't avoid the fact that it's there. Mm -hmm. um, but yes, I, I don't know, I... Um, 
Yeah, for, for, for me, it's just always about trying to, just really trying to be truthful, as truthful as possible, and not doing things for effect, and not doing something because the camera's right here, you know, just absolutely listening. You know, that's the thing I have to say that I think I've learned the most about over the years, that the importance of listening to other actors and what they are saying to you in a scene. It doesn't matter how many times you've rehearsed it, it doesn't matter how many times you know what's coming, still listening, because every time it will be something different and something different to respond to. You've also worked with a lot of great directors, too, which is something that is not true of every actor. Sometimes I have the feeling that actors are trying to build their careers through um, characters, projects, and sort of look over their shoulder, but you've actually worked, you know, done what all really great actors do and worked in tight collaborations with really creative people. Um. Um, I've honestly, I don't know how that's, uh, I don't really know how that's happened to me. Well, having very good agents, thanks very much, guys, um, <laughs> um, certainly helps. Um, no, it has been amazing. I mean, mm. even I myself, when I look back and, you know, God, I've worked with Ang Lee, I've worked with Peter Jackson, I've worked with James Cameron, I've worked with John Turturro. <laughs> you know, I mean, these incredible people. And uh, Jane Campion. Jane Campion, absolutely. Todd Haynes, Todd Field. Mm -hmm. I mean, Danny Boyle now. It's, you know, it's, it really has been it, remarkable. And I've, and I've learned so much. And I love, I love that collaboration that you experience with a director, with a really good director, when they, they want to include you truly and want you to absolutely be a pivotal part of that process for them and to give them choices. You know, that for me is a, is a really big deal. Um, and also to have fun, to play, you know, acting, it's playing. You know, kids play dress up and pretend to be different characters. You know, that's what it is. It's dressing up and pretending to be somebody else. It's, mm -hmm. it's the most fantastic thing in the world. But do you have to get into a kind of a different rhythm with different filmmakers? You're getting it, you're insinuating yourself into a different world or different writers? Yeah, def yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, every actor is different. You know, every director is different, of course. Um, yeah, and it always, it's always a really fun part, actually, the first sort of week or so of a shoot or a rehearsal process because you are very much figuring out, you know, what, what they want, who they are, how they process things. Um, and, and, and also, I, I just think it's very important to be a part of that team and just not judge anyone at all and just accept how odd everyone is because everyone's odd, really odd. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it's, it's sort of gorgeous, I think, this career for that reason. Um, everyone is so different and brings some strangeness into the room and there's nothing more exciting than being in a room of great actors with a wonderful director. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you about the experience of working on... Uh with Michelle Gondry in Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, um, because and Jim Carrey, because uh, and from Charlie Kaufman's script, Michelle is here, and he's such a quiet, kind of shy, reserved individual, and I wonder what kind of tone he sets on the set. Um, Michelle is, he's yeah, he's he's extraordinary. He's he he is quite quiet, as you say, and he really he he does he keeps a lot in his head, and he finds it quite hard, I think, to. Not communicate that, because he does communicate it, but his ideas are so wacky that I think it's very hard for people to 
believe that it's going to work. Um, I, I never had that problem. I would just go, great, that sounds fantastic. Okay, so I, so I come in this door and then I go out that trap door, that hidden one there, and I change costumes and wigs and I come back through this door again. I'm up for that. Let's go. And so there'd be this sort of hysterical, you know, figure eight type arrangements we would do and me running around the back of the camera and changing costumes three or four times and, and, and reappearing in the same shot. I mean, um, he's, he's, he's so genius like that. There were, just, there were no special effects on that film at all. Um, and that is all Michel um, and his experience. I think actually having come from made a lot of music videos um, and learning how to be clever and keep things visually really inspiring and interesting. Um, no, I, 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 I really had an amazing time working with him. And he, yeah, he keeps a small, a small crew and, you know, keeps everything quite compact. Um, yeah, and he's got, you know, crazy mind. He would do shot lists. <laughs> His shot list would be on a napkin, you know. I kept one, actually. There was one... <laughs> I have this napkin and, he, and I made him sign it because it was so extraordinary. It was sort of a picture of me with half a face that had crumbled off. And then sort of another object in the corner that looked a little bit like a fetus in a box. And, and I, said, I said, what's this? He said, it's the scene. It's the scene that we do today. I said, no, this is really not the scene that we're doing today. No, 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 no. It's the scene. Okay. okay, it's the scene. Okay, Michelle, whatever you say. Um, yeah, he's, uh, yeah he's, he, he's, quite, he's quite crazy, yeah. <laughs> wonderful, I mean, so wonderful. Um, forgive me if you've been asked this question before, but I just want to ask, did, I would imagine that the massive success of Titanic kind of threw you a little bit. No one's ever put it to me exactly like that, I have okay. to say. But thank you for saying that, because it did throw me, yeah. Okay. I mean, absolutely. Um, you know, I really, I mean, call me naive, but I had no idea. <laughs> I really didn't. I had no idea that that was what was going to happen with that film and to my life. And um, it's a funny old thing because I look back and I just, I just remember thinking, no, I'm not, I, 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 don't, I don't really know how to do this being famous thing. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure I really like it. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure I'm ready for it either. And mm -hmm. in a funny way, I also didn't feel particularly that I'd earned it. It was a funny thing. I was still learning. I was only 21, and I still had so much to learn. I was learning everything on the job. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I just knew that if I sort of allowed myself to really catapult myself into that world, if I really went with it, um, that it, I think it would have made me... I don't know. I think it would have made me unhappy, possibly, mm -hmm. which sounds like such a strange thing to say because it makes me also sound like, I don't know, slightly ungrateful or something. But, but I, just, I just knew that I had to keep acting, and mm -hmm. I knew that it was most important of all that, that I continued to work hard and work on myself as an actress and to, and to love it and mm -hmm. to nurture those things. Um, and so, yeah, I, I was in a position where I could choose mm -hmm. at that point and chose to do some smaller films because I wanted to stay grounded and I wanted to learn mm -hmm. um, and I wanted to stretch myself um, mm -hmm. and to play characters you know yeah and also I in my mind I also didn't want I didn't want to burn out you know I didn't want this huge moment to happen and for me to kind of fizzle out as the moment fizzled out mm -hmm. um, I wanted to stay sort of strong and true and keep chipping away at it um, yeah. 
And I think, you know, seems to have, I, I think it was the right thing. I think, yeah, I think you handled it very well. What, what were the, what were the... <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You can save that for the record. Yeah. What were, what were the... What were the films that you made directly after, that you actually, the smaller films that you turned to after? I could tell you exactly. Um, so after Titanic, the next thing that I did was a tiny film called Hideous Kinky, teeny tiny film directed yeah. by Gillis McKinnon and, and written by his brother, Billy Great McKinnon, movie. based on a, a book by Esther Freud. Um, and then after Hideous Kinky, I did Holy Smoke. Mm. Um, with Jane Campion and Harvey Keitel. Which was in the New York Film Festival. Correct, it was. I remember being yep. here. Yeah, I really yep. remember it. Mm. I remember standing in that spotlight box and thinking, this can't be right. This is, well, <laughs> what, am I, what, what am I doing here? Um, uh, I did Holy Smoke, and then after Holy Smoke, I did... I, don't know if called, I think I did Quills after yeah. Holy Smoke, mm -hmm. I think. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, I think that came next, Yeah. Yeah, slightly so smaller things. Yeah, and those are very adventurous choices. And I, I uh, again, you know, we're we're talking about the opposite of careerism as it's commonly practiced. I think in Hollywood, you know, I, that's that's the general impression, and I think it's correct. I'm wondering if you agree. Well, I would hope so. Yeah, I mean, I just, you know, I I, I love acting, and I love playing mm -hmm. different parts. You know, and 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 would hope. That I'm a, I, I think of myself hopefully as a as, as a character actress and um, and I'd always you know I think I'd always seen myself as, as that. I was never particularly pretty when I was younger. I was quite chubby actually, and teased for it. And I think when you have that in your mind, you don't ever see yourself as the sort of beautiful swan or anything like that. So I so I I think I was automatically drawn to these kind of more interesting, not necessarily glamorous roles, just because it felt closer to who I felt I was, I, th I think. Mm. Um, but also it's where you can have the most fun too. Um, and, you know, doing lots of different accents and, you know, learning about those things as well. Um, and that's something for me that's very important. It, it's still now very much so. And I felt this so strongly doing Steve Jobs. The, to just keep on learning because you can never ever know enough you can never claim to know it all there's always something else that someone will teach you or you'll be inspired by um and i and i knew that doing the steve jobs film was just going to be this sort of you know festival of great experiences and um and it really really was yeah it looks like it was pure joy for the actors to be working together like that yeah it, you know, it, that it, 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 it truly wasn't i mean seth rogan you know, people ask him a lot, how did you handle all that, you know, heavily written dialogue? And he just said it was it was just such a, it was just such a relief not to have to keep rewriting everything. He, he said, I mean, I couldn't believe this. He, he's, he said, oh, comedians literally, he's, he's like, comedians literally, if they don't like something, they just change it. I mean, they just, they just change it. And I go, really? <laughs> yeah. I mean, they just, they just completely change things on the day from take to take. I mean, I can't, I mean, it sounds like a heck of a lot of fun, but I can't imagine putting a movie together like that. Um, and he kept, he kept referring to this movie as a real movie. So we'd be in rehearsal and he'd be like, oh, so is this like, uh, like, you know, do you guys like do this? Like, like, like on real movies <laughs> is this like really what you do on a real movie <laughs> and of course for us actually well, I had never experienced that level of rehearsal before because we would rehearse each act for 10 days and then we'd stop for a day and then we'd shoot the act and then we'd stop 
and have three days off. And then we would rehearse act two, same thing. And we would learn it, we would, and we'd get to the end of the rehearsal process and there was this great moment that would happen on the last day of each rehearsal block. We would just run it twice like a play and it was fast paced and fabulous with all the actors in the room. And I have to say that was something that Danny Boyle did deliberately and it was a stroke of genius. I mean, it's a common sense thing, but, but to have everybody in the room and we really were pretty much all of the time. And what that meant was that there was no space for egos, not that there were any, I have to say, but no space for any of that stuff because we were all there building this thing together and sharing this experience together and everyone's opinion counted for something i mean really we would open up we would open up the conversation to everyone else in the room if it was just a scene with michael and i and we were struggling to figure out how we should do it i mean we literally would turn to them and say has anyone got any ideas and and you know yeah they would have ideas and they would have thoughts and someone else would jump up actually and say well what about if you did it over here what about if you tried this and i mean it's just great to be in in an environment like that one um because, you know, you get the best out of everybody, but also it gives everyone such extraordinary confidence, you know, no matter what size their role. And, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm all for that. You know, I think confidence is so key, especially for some of the supporting cast. Um, so when we were eating dinner before, uh, one of your former directors, John Turturro, came up to remind me that there was a lot of pressure on me. Thanks, John. That was good. Um, and then, and, and um, you said, don't listen to John because he might ask you to do something crazy like put your legs over your head or something like that. So that must have been an interesting experience working on romance and cigarettes. Um, <laughs> well, John just let me do whatever the hell I wanted, oh, to be honest. Okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> no, but he would. No, he. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the things we did. <laughs> I do remember, actually, a slightly horrifying moment as an actor. You know, when John had asked me to play this film, to play this part, I, I, I don't know, five years, three, or f three, three, four or five years before we actually managed to make the movie. And we all of us had been attached, actually, for quite some time. And in my head, you know, this character was American. She was absolutely American. She was American. Of course she was. That was how it had been written, and that's how I'd read it. The night before we started shooting okay the night before we started shooting do you remember this john phones me up and he says you know i think maybe she's from somewhere else and i'm going <laughs> right um la <laughs> no do some of your voices i'm going what do you mean do some of my fucking voices <laughs> and so i'm sitting there going through everything i do irish scottish which is i do extremely badly um, I can't remember. I did every, everything. And then I sort of did a northern English accent. And he went, oh, that one, yeah. Let's go with that. I'm thinking, great. I've got 12 hours. What the hell? And so I walked onto the set the following morning to shoot a fairly substantial scene with Jimmy Gandolfini. And I'm, so, and I'm suddenly talking like that. And I had the previous day absolutely been playing the role a completely different way. Thanks, John. I was like, so... Um, so that was, yeah, I'd, I would call that whole experience that we had together as it was the ultimate in collaborative for, for everybody. And, uh, yeah, and John, John, yeah, you managed to get people to do some really crazy stuff. I mean, I have to say. <laughs> the words that he had me saying, actually, my character in particular was filthy. I mean, just <laughs> utterly outrageous. I would say to him, I can't say this. And he would say, why not? I said, well, well you know, I can't. 
You want me to talk about him staring at my jelly donut? Okay, okay. You really want me to say that? It's like, yeah, I do. Okay, John, all right. <laughs> um, so, you know, when you have great affection for your director, you, you, know, you become willing and able, hopefully. You do any accent. But then you, would, you said you, your Scottish accent wasn't good, but you did a great Danny Boyle at the table. <laughs> He's not Scottish. Oh, Okay. <laughs> Some <laughs> no. Well, there's he's the answer to that Sheffield, question. And he's very excitable, and he talks like that. <laughs> he's a, yeah, he, he actually he almost comes across. He's got the energy of like a children's TV presenter. He's like, so here we go. <laughs> he's like, he's got this incredible, incredible energy. It's um, mm. I've never known anything like it. He's yeah. uh, he's so he's very, very positive and um, yeah, ex- extremely upbeat and yeah, excitable. Yeah. That was fantastic. More, let's go again. <laughs> oh God, oh God, okay, this is number 37, okay. <laughs> um, outside of your, your acting in, within the, this realm of stardom, one thing that everybody that you know in the room admires you for, one thing that I admire you for, is that you're not self-censoring. Um, and then you recently had, or in the recent past, I think had an episode where someone tried to digitally correct your photograph. Um, and you strongly objected to that, um, yeah. yeah, which is something that means a lot to a lot of people. Well, you know, I think it's, you know, it's up to, I think it's up to, maybe it's just up to me, but it's it, it's up to this generation. I think we you know we do live in a time where, you know, media is so widespread, and and um, and the internet being what it is, and um, and social media being what it is. I think it's. I think it's very easy for children, particularly young girls, to access information about the worlds of people in the public eye that can become quite glamorized in a way that isn't always real. And I I just don't. That bothers me. That really bothers me because I think young girls, they want to be pretty. They want to feel loved and they 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 want to be everything. And they look at those images of people who, you know, are often not necessarily you know, curvy or healthy or, you know, these these kinds of womanly things that I believe in. And um, and it just bothers me that they aspire to look like that. I mean, I you know, I, I, I sadly, I, I, I know um, someone at the moment who's dealing with some issues with a, her daughter who obsessively cuts out pictures from magazines of very thin women who are in the public eye and wants to look like that and very sadly isn't eating properly because she wants to look like that. So it is up to us to somehow communicate to those young women that you just, it's about being who you are, being happy within yourself, feeling confident, comfortable in your own skin and seeing yourself as a person who can grow and change and feel powerful and confident and be a good friend and and pay friends compliments you know that's something that I think is sad these days that we don't seem to come across is young girls turning to their friends and saying wow you look so pretty god I love you know I I love those pants you're wearing and just be complimentary and positive in those friendship circles regardless of size regardless of race you know etc um I just think you know young women these days because they're exposed to levels of criticism in the media they they just copy. They just automatically criticize, criticize their friends, criticize themselves, criticize each other. You know, it's bizarre. Um, and so, yes, yeah, so I, I, so whenever my image, I do see my image digitally altered in any way, I just, well, I'm sorry, but I just, you know, I speak up about it and I say, actually, you know, this isn't, this isn't real. 
because I don't want, I certainly don't want my daughter to look at those images and think, wow, you really look like that? You know, I, 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 I just, it's sort of dishonest and I can't deal with that. <laughs> so happy birthday. Thank you. Yeah, again, because you had it sung to you twice. Danny Boyle led the chorus. Both screening, six o'clock and nine. Who was better, six o'clock or nine? Oh, the nine. Yeah, oh, my God, yeah, I tell yeah, you. Everyone no. really went for it. <laughs> um, are you uh, taking a break after Steve Jobs, or are you uh, diving Well, right we finished... We finished the movie in April, so essentially I've been, wow. I've been pretty much off since then, um, which is, that's not... That's right. recent. That's recent, yeah. So, um, uh, so yes, a little bit of a breather, and, mm -hmm. then, um, and then probably back to work in the spring, I think. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, one, it's wonderful, yeah. I, yeah, I just, I mean, I was 40 yesterday. I mean, that's just crazy. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, but to, it, it, it's also an amazing feeling, because I've been building up to it, too. I've been deciding how I would feel on that day and deciding that I was going to go rocketing to 40. And actually doing Steve Jobs was in some way part of the ending of, you know, it really was very symbolic for me, mm -hmm. um, having that be the last film that I did in my 30s and loving it as much as I do. Um, it's a very special time and it's a very special um, opportunity that I'm having right now that that I can talk about a film that I genuinely love. And when my husband, Ned, and I saw it for the first time, I was very emotional um, because I felt so proud to be a part of something that is this accomplished, you know? It just, it, it, it's, a, it's a really rare feeling, that. Um, and, and, and to feel so excited about people seeing it. Um, yeah, it's, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a lovely moment, I have to say. I'm really glad that you shared it with us and your time with us. And I, I really want to thank you for coming. I've always loved your work. It's great to meet you. And thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Thank you so much. Laura Poitras is a frequent guest here at the Film Society. Her last film, Citizen Four, premiered at last year's New York Film Festival, where it was met with overwhelming praise and excitement from critics and audiences alike. The director joined us again this year to talk about her latest project, Field of Vision, a series of short documentaries that she has produced for Jeremy Scahill and Glenn Greenwald's publication, The Intercept. Poitras joined collaborators Charlotte Cook and A.J. Schnack to discuss the origins of the project, the increasing importance of short-form media, and their distinct approach to the documentary form. The evening was moderated by journalist Mike Jones. So let's go now to their conversation. Um, so I just, I, I wanna get right into it. I wanna, I wanna start with, um, I wanna start with where Field Division came from. Um, I wanna start with why Field Division now, and um, maybe you could just describe a little bit of it. Um, so, uh in 2013, when I was reporting on the Snowden um, documents with Glenn Greenwald, um, Glenn um, and Jeremy Scahill and I all talked about wanting to work together and to team up. And in that conversation, um, we were t looking at different options, and we were approached um, by Pierre Omidyar, who want was interested in, uh, separately in getting involved in um, news reporting. So we decided to work together. And in those in initial um, conversations that I had with Glenn and Jeremy, I said that what I really wanted to do was to, to commission short form 
um, uh, nonfiction films that would be responsive to the world and that could happen in a much faster turnaround than, than I do in long form. And partly it's inspired by some of the work that I've done with the New York Times in doing short films. And as someone who does long form where you're in the field for, you know, uh, oftentimes over a year and it takes such a long time to turn things around, it was just, it's really exciting to be able to work in different ways. Mm -hmm. So when, um, when I was in the sort of final stages of editing, then I started reaching out to people to build this team with this idea of having a small commissioning team that would then um, commission broadly from, um, you know, both in, in the U.S. and internationally. So I first reached out to AJ um, uh, last summer, and then we both um, talked to Charlotte, who was at that time curating at, um, at Hot Talks. So we, and then we started having these conversations about how we wanted to do it, what we were interested in, what we were going to look for. And, um, and then we, I think, pretty much went sort of deep in about March is when we started, you know, really starting to think about it. But we didn't want to announce it until we actually had content ready to share. So we kind of kept it low profile um, in those months so that we could then announce and, and then show the work. So uh, last night you showed um, five or six pieces um, you showed some of your, uh, some from Asylum, which was, from what I read, part of Citizen Four at one point, but then you decided to make it two separate movies, correct? I mean, it, I, I, would just, I wouldn't describe it as part of Citizen Four. Mm -hmm. So what, what happened when um, I started filming with Julian Assange in, um, in 2011 and did an extraordinary amount of filming with him, um, two, 2011, 2000, and. 12, and then when I was ready to edit, I relocated to Berlin, and um, partly because I was having this experience where I was being uh, stopped at the border, so it was a, it was a place to edit um, and not worry about the footage being confiscated um, because there was, you know, there is an actual ongoing um, grand jury investigation into the work that WikiLeaks does. So I was there, and that's when I was contacted by Snowden. Mm -hmm. So, um, so I, it was not, you know, an expected thing, and nice. and then that film when we, uh, I was working um, with an editor, Mathilde Bonfoy, in, um, in Berlin, and we did the first assembly, which had more of the material with Julianne, and we just realized they were, very, they were just different projects, yeah. and they deserved their own space. Uh -huh. um, so, that's, so they kind of um, departed there. So some of the first season of Field of Vision um, is going to include uh, Right, yeah, for those who are, um, uh, uh, so t uh, I'm now um, working on returning to the material um, that's, that's focused on Julian Assange and WikiLeaks, and um, we're, I'm approaching it as an episodic uh, that will be done in chapters. Mm -hmm. So uh, aside from Asylum, the, the way you describe it is that you find filmmakers and you, um, you kind of finance them into action, essentially. So the other pieces that were shown last night, can you take one as an example and tell us how that came? I'll kick that over to, to together. Yeah. Yeah, sure, but which one? <laughs> I feel like I'm, I'm playing favorites. Uh, do, um, <laughs> yeah, tell me. Why don't, why don't you do Birdie? First of all, tell us a little bit about Birdie, what it's about. Sure. Yeah, I mean, that's actually a, a good example and different from the other films. Um, so Birdie is... Uh, one of actually two films that we made about uh, homeless in Brazil and the relationship that they have uh, with their dogs. Um, and it actually comes out of a, an editorial meeting that was at The Intercept and Glenn Greenwald uh, w wanted to write about, um, about the story and about this relationship. And uh, immediately we thought that's something that we would love to do uh, either one film or two uh, about and so we reached out to Eloisa Passos, who is an extraordinarily talented uh, cinematographer. Um, for those of you who've seen Jason Cohn's uh, Mandabala, send a bullet from a few years ago. Um, she she shot that, and uh, 
she also, I think, she did something for you on yeah, Citizen she did Four. Yeah, she did a couple shoots for Citizen Four and with um, in Rio. Yeah. Yeah. So we um, we reached out to her and sh and she was working on a project and, and it was just kind of finding the the right time timing for it. Um, she went out and shot in August um, and got both of these stories uh, and then was quickly editing. So um, the turnaround uh, for her was, uh, for a lot of the films, a lot of the films were still shooting last month. Um, so there was, a, there was a pretty quick turnaround. That's the only one of the five that we showed last night that has an editorial component to it. Um, the others are, and are also the only one that's a multi-part. Um, the other ones are, are standalones uh, and I think in all the cases, um, uh, three of them were, were projects where we um, s thought something interesting was happening in the world um, and we asked a filmmaker to, uh, to go out and, and explore it in, in their own way, you know, in their own artistic sensibilities. Um, and the only, the only other exception is uh, Eva uh, um sh her film Notes on the Border. Um, she, we'd actually assigned her a different um, project, but it seemed like it wasn't sort of developing in the way that we wanted to. And she was like, you know, this migrant crisis is, is happening in, in Europe, and I would really like to do something about that. And we were like, yes, go. Um, so hers changed into the film uh, that she ended up making. So this, you're going to do 40 to 50 movies in a year. Um, First of all, is there, a, is there a time limit you're trying to keep them within? Is, I mean, they're probably a sh very short, but is there a, is there a uh, can they not be as, longer, uh, as long as 30 minutes, or is, are you trying to keep it? I think if yeah. we went to 30, we would uh, ask the filmmaker to see if it is something that could be multi-part. Okay. Um, right. is there, does it make sense that it would be split into two or three films? Okay. All right. um, I mean, we're certainly interested in in episodic filmmaking, in thematic filmmaking, um, we aren't afraid of telling a longer story. But um, I, w one of the things that really excites us about this in, in terms of longer work is uh, approaching things from an episodic um, perspective, which actually means that an episode has to have um, a different kind of rhythm. I mean, there needs to be a beat at the end that like, um, you know, sort of puts a, a bit of a period or, or maybe just a really strong comma mm -hmm. on the end um, and encourages you to like want to come back and see something else. I, I think that's a really thrilling thing as a filmmaker to think differently about how you tell the stories. Um, and we're excited to engage people in that way. Yeah. Um, but we also realize that a lot of people watch these things on their phones or on tablets or on laptops. And a lot of times when you click on a video, the first thing you do is look down at the bottom to see how long it is going to be. And then, you know, we don't want people to look down at it and go like, eh, I just don't have that kind of time. Charlotte, maybe you could, first of all, I'd like to answer this question. That, that, so to do 40 to 50 movies a year, it seems like that requires a, um, a huge database of filmmakers. Where are you getting those filmmakers? How are you cultivating them? Um, I mean, I'm lucky in that I came out of Hot Docs. And so for the last four years, um, I mean, even just showing the films we've shown, I've come across between 800 and a thousand filmmakers um, that we showed their work in hot dogs so I have you know and I also love talent scouting and looking for new voices and so I mean that's something that I already um, kind of bring to this um, but also you know we we love talking about different perspectives and different ways filmmakers can tackle it so it you know as much as we're looking for filmmakers we're also looking for cinematographers and editors and you know, different views and different styles so um, yeah, we're doing a lot of research and really, and also people are reaching out, which is really lovely. After we kind of announced that we were doing this, we've had a huge influx of people 
reaching out to us and seeing how they're interpreting it even before they've seen the films has been really interesting to us too. At what stage should filmmakers reach out to you? I mean, do you, you don't acquire stuff that's already shot, do you? Or no, I mean, it depends. If they have material that's already shot but they haven't maybe used it or want to use it in a different way that's now timely or speaks to something that's happening now, I think we'd be really open to that. Um, but they can reach out at any stage. I mean, I think we're interested if they have an idea. Um, we're also going to be still doing um, commissions in the way of assignments. So if people are just, you know, eager to do something, that would be really interesting. Because the filmmakers we've just had, the nature of the launch meant we were assigning. Um, and they found that very freeing to not have to bring the subject matter to the table. So I think we're interested in filmmakers who want to do that mm -hmm. too. Um, Laura, you said uh, you're interested in pairing um, filmmakers with journalists who are already covering a particular story, a particular beat. So how, how, would, how would that work? Um, I mean, I can give you a, a concrete example. It's actually, um, it's a film that I was involved in that we, that we, um, we published before we launched Field Division. So um, there's a journalist at the, um, at the Intercept, Peter Moss, who had access to Stephen Kim, who was, um, was being prosecuted under the Espionage Act, and he'd been, um, he was sentenced, and he was preparing to um, basically surrender and go to prison, and he had access to him um, in the weeks before. And so he told me that, and I said, well, this is a, the kind of filmmaking that I'm really interested in. Let's pair you up with a filmmaker. So Peter had, had, had the access, he did a very lengthy um, written piece that went into you know, what's going on with how the Espionage Act is being used, um, in recent years and talked about many different um, uh, examples of it and particularly Stephen Kim and then the film really follows um, Stephen as in the weeks before he, he goes into prison. So it was an example of how we're access being at the right, you know, in the right moment to really see something that was obviously clearly um, dramatic when you see somebody, um, you know, kind of closing down their life and, and um, and what had happened in this case, which was really an injustice. I mean, this was somebody who worked for the State Department and was encouraged to speak to a, um, a journalist. Um, and then the government um, uh, investigated both the journalist and the, and the source in this case. And the journalist was described as a co-conspirator by the government and the, the, their phone records were taken. So it was a really interesting um, story to, to cover and, and these the kinds of um, themes in, that I'm, I'm interested in. So that's kind of an example of how getting in early and trying to tell the story, not telling it after the fact, but telling it as it's unfolding and how that can be possible. Um, Jeremy Scahill, who's at The Intercept as well, does, um, we're, we're teaming up on a story that we can't go into details about, but it's a, it's a deep dive investigative story that we're pairing up um, a filmmaker who we um, have uh, you know, tremendous um, you know, respect and belief in. And so they're working now um, and we'll release those two things together. Um, so this is, you're going to be able to see it on The Intercept and uh, there's other platforms that you're going to release this content on. Can you talk a little bit about those? I think, you know, we really just want to see what the best place for each film is. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, yeah, I mean, we have a site. It goes live tomorrow. <laughs> um, 1 p.m. If, if all goes well. Um, so, sorry, just to jump in. Yeah, it, uh, what, what films are they going to be able to see? How many films do you have ready to go? We're launching with two, but we're not going to tell you what they okay. are. Okay. Yeah. Um, I don't want to know. Yeah, you <laughs> figured that. Um, anyway, we'll, uh, we'll have two films up tomorrow. But, you know, the, one of the things I think with all of these projects is, you know, we're interested in working with partners. Um, some films may make sense that... Uh, they will premiere somewhere else first, and then they'll come to us. Um, may be a case uh, that we, you know, work with somebody to get them into to some kind of theatrical presentation. Um, I think, you know, the the nice thing about 
what we're doing in terms of that is that there's a certain amount of freedom um, that we have with the people we work with at First Look Media, and they're, they've been very encouraging about like, you know, that the films find good homes and that we do what's best for the films and the filmmakers. Um, so we haven't um, set anything you know, up specifically for a film yet, but it's something that we're starting to talk with people about. I mean, for instance, with Asylum, which it's, go it's still in production, what we, uh, we showed um, at the film festival is in, in preview, and so that will be released in 2016, and it might be released through with another partner in partnership, of, uh, Field of Vision in partnership with um, another uh, outlet that will reach a larger audience than maybe we would in our show. I want to open it up to questions, and I'll come back with a few other questions, too. Um, who has a question for our panelists here? Don't be shy. All right. Um, think about it and come back with your question. All right. Um, how do, well, there was one? Yes, go ahead. Let's wait for the microphone real quick because it's being recorded and you all agreed to it. I'm, I'm from the Philippines. I'm wondering if this is an opportunity for amateur documentary filmmakers to be able to collaborate and uh, raise issues from other countries. I mean, we're really, really interested in um, foregrounding sort of cinema and craft, and, but that doesn't exclude really anyone. I mean, it can be younger filmmakers, it can be very, um, you know, um, veterans in the field. Um, but we do want things that, um, that are really um, working with, the, um, with cinematic, what's, what's possible with cinema. So we want things that are, um, uh, you know, visual, that the, in terms of well-recorded, those kinds of things. But it doesn't exclude, for instance, um, working with, you know, um, uh, people, you, you said amateur, did you describe it as, yeah, I mean, I think that we, we'd be open to, there's, there's, you know, a tradition of what we would call like citizen journalists that, you know, produce incredible cinematography. And if we, if that, if we got a knock on our door, we'd be thrilled to, you know, to show that. So we're not, we haven't, we're not excluding anything, but we do want it to feel that it will both be, have some sort of relevance um, in the present, but that also will not just be um, living in a news cycle. We want things that have more universal, um, lasting potential. You know, to that point, Laura, you, I read um, on, there's a, there's a fascinating interview with the three of you on The Intercept, and if you want to know more about Field of Vision, it's, it's, a, it's a fantastic little gateway, but the thing that you said, Laura, that I was interested in is that you said um, that you're not really interested in arcing things out sometimes, that um, you're not interested in necessarily having a resolution. Um, so describe what that means in terms of these short pieces. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I, sometimes I th uh, with short form, I think it might be interesting to just sort of enter into a, um, a situation and then leave it. And oftentimes when we do long form, we feel like it has to have three acts, that it has to have a situation, conflict, and resolution. And I'm not sure that that's actually the best structure for um, online um, short form. I'm, I'm not actually convinced at all. And so we're, I think we're interested in maybe, you know, maybe we publish a film that had, you know, three long shots, for instance, and that was, it, you know, it, it, it didn't have its, a sort of a full arc. Um, and so we're interested in different types of um, how um, people are thinking about structure. So if it doesn't have an arc, what, what are you looking for in terms of that thing that grabs uh, an audience member? I mean, I we're, mean, I we're, we're still figuring that out. I mean, to be quite honest, so, so say for instance, we're, um, you know, we just did a film about the refugee crisis, but that's for an example, a film that you could potentially tell with a fixed camera. 
and you know you just the the sort of the you know people yeah. and and movements if you had a camera in the white in the right place would be an example of how you could approach that and so but we're 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 looking for filmmakers to uh, to help answer those questions yeah. what is really the best way if you wanted to capture a moment and what was interesting about the stuff that you showed last night was that how um, how divergent the styles were you know how quickly can you activate a crew to go and grab some? Yeah. The first film that we, from the time we talked to the filmmakers to when they were on the ground was a week. Mm -hmm. um, so I think we could go even a little bit faster now because um, we have uh, a little bit more systems in place. We, we did that basically before we had all the scaffolding up, <laughs> uh, really before we'd even moved in. So, um, But yeah, no, I think if we saw something happening and found a filmmaker, we could have them on a plane the next day. Other questions? Um, it seems like what you're doing right now is basically, I think it's brilliant because you're acknowledging that the, the world of sort of documentary and journalism is collapsing into itself in, in a lot of different ways. And um, what, um, what I think is fascinating is that how do you see um, sort of cultivating the, an online audience um, in this way, and, and for documentaries especially because for a lot of people, Netflix was the way in which documentaries were seen. Um, and, and now that, you know, television and, and all of that uh, realm, you know, the front lines and stuff are also going online to, to get an audience for documentaries as well. How do you see sort of building, are you building sort of a new audience or sort of bringing along sort of the, the niche sort of documentary audience that has always been sort of watching docs on Netflix and other things? Um, I mean, I think building our own audience is going to take time. It does. Um, people need to get used to seeing content from us. Um, but I, I, my belief is always that the audience is there. I think there's this weird myth that there isn't for this kind of content. Um, especially as a programmer, I've seen that. Um, so I think, one, people will find us. Um, but I do think people are consuming content in so many different ways, whether it's still in a broadcast news sense or whether you're getting your news on Snapchat, which a lot of people do. So I think there's just so people are used to finding what they're interested in from a whole different variety of platforms. And, you know, we are going to be publishing on different platforms too. So I think we'll just fit into one, the audience is there, but hopefully people will get used to seeing a different perspective on this too. You know, you each bring different talents to this, um, to Field of Vision. Can you talk about what your individual role is within the company? AJ, you start. Craft service. Craft service. <laughs> yeah. Hot dogs. Not a pizza. <laughs> um, no, I, the nice thing is, is that we are we're partners. Um, we created this together. Uh, we commissioned together. Um, it, we watch films together. Um, you know, I, I, the different things that we'll do is that one of us will sort of be the point person for a film and kind of take it under our wing and be the one who's kind of uh, you know call me if you need something and let's check in and. Um, you know, I think um, Charlotte does have an you know incredible skill of like finding filmmakers, you know, and who are, um, you know, I don't know where she finds them, but you know, like just just knowing, having a really good ear to the ground about what people are thinking about and talking about, and and new talent and new work, um, and that's you know extraordinarily uh, exciting to us. And I think Laura and I are, are both filmmakers, and um, part of that. Uh, is, has really led us to make sure that this is a fil filmmaker-driven company, um, that the initiative is not just driven 
um, by <clears throat> the, you know, the desires of cliques or um, anything really about trying to create a, 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 a platform by which filmmakers can experiment, make great work, um, and do things that maybe they wouldn't have an opportunity to do in, you know, anywhere else. Um, so I think I think you know our filmmaking background is is you know really key to how the, the how we've tried to set up this initiative. Yeah, and so things, for instance, things like access are really you know key to us. Like so, if we have a story and we think we can get access, then we'll try to we'll be able to do more than we can do as filmmakers. We think this is an amazing situation. Let's reach out and see if we could get access, and if we can, then we can bring a filmmaker in. So that kind of being able to. Um, expand the, 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 the type of, I think, visual journalism that's possible. It's, it's really exciting and uh, even at the party last night we, we threw a gathering and, you know, there are things that came up out of that. There's like, oh, there might be a story there, there might be a story there and that we can actually act on it quickly is great and the, the three of us um, we can green light projects so we can just, you know, we don't have to go through a, um, a complicated um, process to get something moving um, and so that's really exciting and then it, and they're, they're very much commissions so the filmmakers can decide who to bring on in terms of their team and how to allocate budgets. Um, we are trying to um, cover really the expenses of what these, um, the, what the, the real costs are. And, uh, and, but we're very active in the um, giving notes and, and viewing things. So filmmakers will, s will submit a rough cut, we all give notes, and it goes through many back and forth with um, looking at footage, which is something that, um, as filmmakers, we all, you know, um, there's incredible value of showing rough cuts and, and rough cut screening. So we, we're, we're, we are very active in that part of the process. Do you want to say something? Oh, I was just going to say it's incredible working with two filmmakers on this to have that eye. Um, both Laura and AJ have worked with you know every outlet imaginable, so you know it brings that kind of pros and cons and how filmmakers um, get the best experience possible. And to have that eye guiding the whole process is really phenomenal. Uh, other questions? Yes, right here in the middle. Oh, wait, wait, let's wait for the microphone. Pass it on down. Yeah. So, uh, do you guys think? Uh, that there will be a section for pitching, like how are there those stories coming to you guys directly? Yeah, sure. Um, so we wanted to make that as easy as possible. So there is simply an, an email address on the website that comes straight to us. So we want, you know, we want to hear from people and what they're thinking about and what they want to do. So it's really that simple. Yeah, but I would say if people are going to pitch us, they um, talk about how it's going to be told visually. You know, it's not just an idea about something and. Um, but really, how are you going to tell it? So if you actually have some footage or you can show work, that's going to help a lot. Um, Go ahead. Oh, sorry. It's just um, another question that came up. Um, so do you think a story... Uh, how is a story to... Um, is a story to... It needs to be too global or... If, if I'm running... Like, if I am investigating a case for 10 years, but it's something that happened in a region in Brazil that I'm following, like, for 10 years, would that be something that you guys would be interested in? Or how far we can go? I mean, I think the question... My first question to that would be, do you want to tell 10 years of work now in a short form? I think that would be my instant question to you. Or is there a piece of that story you feel like should be told now? And so therefore we maybe would talk to you about that piece of the story. So we'd be open to the best way for you to tell that story, I think. Yeah, I can uh, talk about an example. So um, I made a film for, uh, for the Optox for the New York Times, which was about Guantanamo. And it was a combination of older footage that I'd shot and a new story, um, or a new development in the story. So I'd filmed um, families in Yemen who were being visited um, uh, with 
by a lawyer, and they had uh, family members at Guantanamo. So it was this, this footage with families, and then I heard that um, somebody had died um, at a very young age at Guantanamo, and I had filmed uh, with the family. So the, the, f the film that I made for them followed the return home of the, of the, um, the body of the uh, Guantanamo prisoner, and it was intercut with the archival footage, uh, not archival, but the older footage that I, that I had shot. And, um, and that provided an example of, you know, like something that became, that was immediate, had immediate kind of um, responding to events, but was drawing upon uh, more of a historical um, uh, whatever breadth. And, and so I think things like that, if there is something that maybe would bring it into sort of a present tense, I think would be probably more where we'd be inclined to go. There was a question in the back. Yes. Yeah, I, I take it you're only interested in short form, but would you take part of a feature and say break it down to a 10 minute, uh, you know, short from that, or has it got to be just a short one-off? I think, I mean, we've talked about this a lot. There are a lot of outlets who already do that um, and do it very, very well. Um, I think we'd be interested if there was, you know, say you were in production and something happened that you really thought, you know, this is a tangent that probably won't make the feature and really should get out there and exist on its own, or it's something that I need to t tell now. Um, in terms of doing like kind of cut downs, I think there are people who already do that incredibly well. So just on that point, so if uh, somebody pulls some content out of a feature that they're developing and it goes up on field division, then um, they can still have the footage from their, uh, from the feature that they're cutting together. I mean, how does that, I guess, licensing work? So um, we, uh, so the way that the, we're working with filmmakers is the filmmakers keep the copyright of the work that they publish with us. Um, we are, um, we, w we have a, a license agreement with just the published work and that the raw footage uh, belongs to the, the filmmakers. So in a, I mean, I, I think we're not interested in like kind of a cut and paste from a feature, but if there's material that's sort of outside of um, or, or is released before, that that would be something that, that we would be, um, it wouldn't restrict the filmmaker from continuing to pursue their, their long form project. Other questions? You guys are going to be able to make your movies while you do this too? Okay. Yeah, All it's right. very Just important. Ask yeah. That. No, no, it's, it is. It's very important. I mean, bringing a filmmaker perspective as strong as these two to the table is, it's, I mean, they have to still make the work. I want to keep seeing the work. So, mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely. Uh, Laura's putting um, some of Asylum onto uh, Field Division. AJ, do you have some of your stuff that you're going to put up? I mean, at some point, uh, yeah. probably. I, the, I'm doing uh, uh, some political work that will we'll end up somewhere else. Um, but uh, um, I, to, to your question, the nice thing is I, I just actually finished shooting something this summer as we were kind of gearing up. So we handed it off to the editor, and I was like, "I'll see you in December." <laughs> you know, it was just like a nice, a nice uh, timing to be able to um, really delve into this. And it, it's such a creative thrill to like work with filmmakers and talk to them about what they're thinking and their process and seeing like what their ideas are and and seeing how they approach various situations. Um, so, I mean, that's another great thing I think for for both of us is, you know, it, when you work with other creative people, it just makes you better and makes you excited about the work you, you want to do. Um, so, I think it's a, it's re we're really lucky to be able to do it. Mm -hmm. um, yes, right here. Well, hold on, hold on. We have to get the technical question <laughs> in the mic. There you go. Where are you based? Um, our offices are here in New York. Um, AJ is based in LA. 
Um, talk about the other partner in this, The Intercept. Tell us what The Intercept is, for those that don't know, and how, um, how are they your partners in this project? Okay, so there are two um, companies that we're working with. So there's First Look Media, which is the larger company that um, uh, was formed in 2013. And then after that, The Intercept emerged, and that's um, Glenn Greenwald, Jeremy Scahill, and I are co-founders or co-editors of, of that. And, um, and the way that we're relating, um, we, we're going to be partnering on stories and the, we'll be releasing uh, on a, we'll have our, we have our own landing page, but it will be on a, under in the, within the Intercept. Um, but we have our uh, somewhat, I mean, the editorial process, we're, we're um, the fact-checking is happening through the, the staff of, of The Intercept, and, oh, uh, but the actual commissioning and what, what stories we decide to go f forward with um, are the three of us. Okay. All right. Yes, right here. Um, what was it about the material on Julian Assange that made you want to do it episodically? It, it actually came out of the conversation of um, d d developing what we were building. We started talking about like what kind of um, storytelling are we really excited about right now, and uh, we all agree like that episodic is w probably one of the most interesting directions that's happening in, in nonfiction storytelling, and we all just love it. And it works in different types of ways than long form. I mean, I love long form as well, um, but uh, but and and then we said like, well, we should really think about how to do episodic. And then after that conversation, then I said, wow, this this material with um, uh, that shows Julian and um, could potentially really be great for that. And then I started um, editing, and then I said, oh, this is really exciting, and it allows kind of working with footage in a way um, that that maybe with with long form you have to really sometimes really sacrifice what is amazing material because it has to serve a longer and uh, and this opens up different types of possibilities and also different types of working with um, time gaps and how to introduce new characters and um, there's just something really exciting about that because once the audience knows the you know the main characters and they're into the story then you can do in a sense like some more unpredictable things and it just feels for me as creative person just um, really exciting and obviously there's a um, dramatic um, through line in, in, in terms of um, Julian's situation in the case and then the other main thing was the being interested in working with material that was shot and then bringing it up to the present the present time and following what's happening with Julian now as he continues to, to publish. I mean, he's been in the embassy now for over um, three years and he's continuing to publish. Uh, next year, probably. Yeah. I mean, probably sometime er, like in, er, er, in early 2016, hopefully. Yeah. Um, is, is there a concern, maybe this isn't, isn't a concern, but when you pair a filmmaker with a journalist who is going after a story, um, the filmmaker and the journalist are each collecting their material for the story or the documentary. Um, I guess my question is: Is there is there a is there a point of view concern with the journalists as opposed to the filmmakers? Is there a way that those two stories become bifurcated? I'm, we're not that worried about that. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, I, I think that that, in a sense, it's a question about collaboration and that that's something to be worked between the, the, the writer and the filmmaker in that case. Um, I think what we want to be careful of is that they're not trying to be one-to-one. -one. You know, I think that they should have their own voices and their, and their own journeys and that it's additive and it doesn't feel like they're covering the same points. So, um, you know, other than that, I think that the how to navigate, um, you know, there, there are times when having a camera in the room can be beneficial and there are times where maybe it's not beneficial and that, that's something that we would 
that would that would be up to the the filmmaker and the writer to navigate. Yeah, the um, the time uh, for those I'm sure you have seen, but the Times has been publishing some long form stories with some uh, short docs inside of them that have, that were incredibly effective. The one I remember recently was not recently, but it was Boys in the Bunkhouse, which did a 30 minute documentary on the subjects of this story, which really gives it such a great texture. Well, I want to thank you all for coming, and let's just remind everybody it's launching tomorrow. Uh, fieldofvision.com. No, it's, what's the, the URL? It's intercept.com. Theintercept.com. Forward okay. slash fieldofvision. Got it. All right, so go check it out. Thank you all Thank for you. coming. Thank you. The Close Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Nick Kemp and Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, please visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here.